If you have your Bibles with you, open them with me to the book of Philippians. It's been three weeks since we were here. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We are a church that works our way through books of the Bible. Uh, Keeps me off of my hobby horses. Uh, Keeps us going through God's Word and the whole counsel of God. And it lets the Lord dictate in many ways what He wants to say to you this morning. I pray that certainly is the case this morning. Well, we've been studying this book of Philippians for the past several weeks as a church, having taken a break the last couple of weeks when I was gone out of town. Just as point of reminder and uh, instruction for those of you who may be visiting or tuning in for uh, the first time online, Philippians is a first century letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was formerly called Saul, to a young church that he himself planted after his conversion. Paul obviously has a lot of great affection for these people, and and we have seen glimpses of that affection. In love, he has encouraged them, just by way of review, he's encouraged them in their identities as citizens of heaven here in this very Roman colony where they prided themselves on their Roman citizenship. He reminds them of their heavenly citizenship. He reminds them that they are servants of King Jesus, not just servants of the emperor. He's encouraged them to make certain their lives are worthy of the gospel, lives of love, lives of self-sacrifice, lives that make evident God's work. And he's even put before them some examples of men who have faithfully served and are faithfully serving Christ in their time. Men like Timothy, men like Epaphroditus. Remember looking at those guys. But more importantly, most importantly, Paul has set before the Philippians Jesus. The risen Christ. The self-emptying, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, now exalted at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus. He sure said a lot already. We're about halfway through this brief letter. He said a mouthful, a letter full. And so when we come this morning to the word finally, right out of the gate here in chapter 3, verse 1, it sounds as if he's bringing something to a close. Maybe he's bringing the letter to a close, but he's actually not. I'm no Greek stud, so I don't know why the translators chose to use the word finally, but that Greek word could actually be translated in other ways, like so then, or to go on. And so Paul is not ending his letter yet. He is simply transitioning in this first verse to a theme that he's briefly touched on in the last chapter, and to a warning There was unfortunately a common need in the first century church. A church that's trying to figure things out still. What did Jesus teach? What does that mean for our lives? It was still new. It was still radical. It was still revolutionary. And so Paul is helping create definition for them. He said these things before but they need to be said again and again. And this is a good reminder for us. You've heard this passage read. Maybe you read it this past week. Maybe you read it last year. Maybe you've heard a sermon on it. Probably a sermon better than you're going to hear this morning. But it's good for us to hear these 
things again. And you'll hear that in Paul's language here right off the bat. So, picking up where we were three weeks ago, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 this morning, as is our custom, uh, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word before we unpack it and walk through what the Lord wants to say to us this morning. First, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, listen as I read. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. For those of you who are here, last time we opened up the book of Philippians together, I began our time together by talking about obituaries. I read a couple obituaries from the recent Edmonds paper. I did that because of the usefulness of thinking about from time to time what might be written about us when we die, when we are gone. Well, today I want to talk about what might be written about you now while you're alive. I want to begin by talking about resumes. It's been a while Thankfully, since I've had to update my resume, I think it was 12 years ago for all of you, those of you who are around and who were part of the call for me to come to this church. It's a little weird working on a resume, particularly in, in my calling, because I want to be humble and upfront about my, my weaknesses and my shortcomings, but you also need to promote yourself, right? I remember having th this conversation a couple different times with my kids before their first job interviews and counseling them that, yes, while we have taught you uh, meekness and not to flaunt the, the skills and the gifts that the Lord has given you, yeah, yeah throw that away right now because you need to promote yourself. You need to make yourself look good. You need to show yourself to be capable 
and competent and confident and accomplished. Right? Because this is how the world works. It's how we make the team. It's how we land the job. It's how we impress the powers that be. It's how we build our careers in order to have the life we want. A happy and fulfilled life. But I think you know, church, that this is not how the Gospel works. That's not what makes the Gospel good news. Paul begins our passage this morning with the four words, rejoice in the Lord. He calls us to joy. The joy, of course, we've talked about this a little bit. Joy is richer and deeper than, than mere happiness. Joy can actually weather and withstand the changing circumstances, the ups and downs of our lives. It might be tested, but joy remains steady. And in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian, joy is eternal. Joy is a prominent theme in the book of Philippians, in the letter of Philippians. One that we'll return to again and unpack a bit more in the coming weeks. But here this morning, Paul just dips our toes, so to speak, into this subject of joy. And he reminds us where joy is not found and where joy can be found and must be found. Two truths that I'd like us to see and be reminded of this morning from Philippians chapter 3. And the first one is this. Legalism kills joy. Legalism kills joy. Now maybe you're saying legalism, that's not in the passage, Nate. It's true, it's not in the passage. But the concept of legalism is... Let me explain. Legalism is a term that gets thrown around in the church. It gets thrown around in Christian circles. And I recognize it can be understood in in different ways. I don't want to unpack and spend a lot of time talking about all the ways that legalism can be understood. I just this morning want to use it in its most obvious of meanings. Trying to earn God's favor with our own efforts. That's what I mean. When I say that legalism kills joy. And that's what's happening here in the church at Philippi. It had already happened, where? In the churches of Galatia. This was an early church group known as the Judaizers. We've spoken about them before. They wanted to add to the work of Christ this long list of adherence to Jewish customs and rituals. Jesus plus those things, they said, equals salvation. And we studied this not too long ago. In fact, I think many of you were probably sitting on your couches at home and I was all alone in this gym speaking to a camera as we were talking about this passage in Galatians and talking about the need for the church to get the gospel right. What is the gospel? Well, Paul here faces the similar challenge in the church at Philippi. The Judaizers have spread 
East and are now infiltrating their understanding of salvation, their understanding of where joy is found. And so Paul speaks about these teachers like he did in Galatia. He speaks about them in the strongest of terms. Now, now we may think, geez, Paul, you're so mean here. Like these are, these are dirty names. Paul is not name-calling here. One, this, this speaks to the gravity of what he's concerned about. But two, these are actually super descriptive words. Right? First he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for these dogs. Now dogs in this region of, of planet Earth, especially our beloved creatures, right? We love our dogs in the Northwest. But in the first century, it was much different. Dogs were mangy street scavengers. Not appropriate things for your lap. They were unclean. They preyed on others. And that's how Paul thinks of these false teachers, these Judaizers. And he specifically calls them dogs in a bit of irony, since that is how some of the Jews spoke of their Gentile neighbors. And now he says, now you Jews who are demanding that Gentiles be, you're the dogs. And he says to the church, look out for these dogs. These teachers are evil, he says, the next phrase. Evildoers. They're evil workers of the law. They pride themselves on following the law, but they're actually evil workers of the law, stealing joy as they add to the gospel. And then finally, they are mutilators of the flesh. What's Paul speaking of here? Well, Paul is specifically speaking of the Old Testament covenant sign of circumcision, isn't he? given to Hebrew boys on their eighth day of life. These teachers who had come into Philippi were demanding that that sign be administered to Christian converts. It was a necessary thing to be a follower of Jesus. It was a misunderstanding. It was a misreading of the Old Testament, according to Paul. Because circumcision was never just about the outward sign. Listen to what he wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. It's a heart thing. It's not a flesh thing, which is why he says to the church, after saying, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh, we are the circumstance. We are the circumcision, he says. He says to the church at Philippi, we are the circumcision. We are the true Christians. And then he gives three things that define them. We worship by the Spirit of God. The sanctified places are gone. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. We glory in Jesus, not in our own accomplishments or adherence to the law, and we don't rely on the flesh. We recognize that those things don't matter. This, Paul says, is true Christianity. This is the Gospel, and this is what fuels joy. And before we go on, 
me just say, say here, God doesn't want your performance in order for you to be accepted before him. He doesn't want to see your resume. He doesn't want to see your best adherence to the law. And if you are caught on that treadmill of trying to be good before God, before a holy God, there will be no peace for you. There will be no anxiety. There will be no joy for you. Only frustration. So this is a big deal. Paul says, get this. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. And to further press this point home, Paul flexes his Jewish muscle a bit, right? Verses 5 and 6. We might describe verses 5 and 6 of Philippians chapter 3 as essentially the calling card of Saul. Not Paul, but Saul, his previous identity. If if Paul were, were tweeting this out to the ancient world, it would be hashtag best period Jew period ever period. That's essentially what he's saying here. Seven marks of pedigree, accomplishment, and commitment. Let's just run through them really quick. Circumcised on the eighth day. The central ritual of the Old Testament Jew, the one being imposed by, uh, on converts by this group, the Judaizers. Paul received it, and he received it on time. He was an eight-dayer, right? Not a day late. Of the people of Israel, Paul was a pure descendant. He wasn't a convert from some pagan nation. He was a full-blooded Hebrew. I've got the stuff, he says. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was, uh, just to reach back in your Old Testament history, Benjamin was the special son, the special child of Jacob and Rachel. His name means son at my right hand. Israel's first king was a Benjamite. The Benjamites were the ones who stayed loyal to the Davidic line when Jeroboam rose up against King Rehoboam. And Paul says, I'm a Benjamite. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My family was committed to everything Hebrew. I was a Pharisee. No one took the law more seriously than this Jewish sect that began in the 2nd century before Christ came. These guys were diligent. They were deeply committed to pure religion at all costs. Then Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. Saul's was a zeal that took action. Right In defense of all of his pedigree, of all his heritage, he chased down and he imprisoned Christians. He forced them to blaspheme when necessary. He stood by and watched them get killed and loved it. Held the coats for people so they could get a better throw of their stone. And then finally, he was blameless under the law, speaking as those who ran in the circles that he used to run in. He says, I was good at following the letter of the law, every little jot and tittled of what was required. You see, Paul lists this impressive resume of his former life, of his former identity as Saul, and he says, no one did it better, guys. 
right here, this is superior spirituality. At least in the categories that you are wanting people to be spiritual. And he says, I've been there. I've done that. And you know what? It's a dead end. Let's just stop right there for a second and think about how this might intersect our lives. See, this is the way of the world that can creep into our thinking in the church. We tout at least, at least in our inner selves before God, our, our resumes of holiness. Maybe we beat ourselves up before God. If we missed our time of prayer in the morning before heading out the door, we make too much of ourselves and too little of God's standard. Yeah, we're not caught in these first century debates over Jewish tradition, but we, we have our own traps of legalism, you and I. Whether it be church attendance, whether it be faithful quiet times, having all of our theological ducks in a row, being a good person, or keeping your nose clean in a variety of ways, we can subtly or boldly believe that that is necessary for our acceptance with God. And because of that, we often find ourselves frustrated, asking, have I done enough? Are you pleased with me, Lord? Because there's always more to be done. There's always more to confess. There's always ways to improve. It's just more and more and more and more and more. Which is why, brothers and sisters, that legalism kills joy. Which is why, brothers and sisters, that's not what Paul proclaims. Paul proclaims the Gospel. The good news. He says, get off of that performance treadmill. Get off of adding anything to the work of Christ. And simply put, which is our second point, joy is found, excuse me, joy is being found in Jesus. Legalism kills joy, but joy is being found in Jesus, in, in one day, in one encounter with the risen Jesus, Saul's world was turned upside down and Paul was born. Everything that Saul held dear was suddenly irrelevant. And that was to the absolute joy of his heart. Notice it didn't come through Paul learning about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. He knew the dates and the times and the claims and the teachings. It came through an encounter with the living Christ. It came through the knowledge that Christ had done all that was needed. It came through knowing that Christ and being found in him. Righteousness was Paul's greatest need. He worked his whole life for it. And he discovered that Christ has more than enough. Paul describes it here in Philippians chapter 3 in terms of loss and gain. This is actually banking terminology that Paul is using here. 
And I want you to get this because it's important. Essentially what Paul is saying is that what he thought were deposits were actually debits. Imagine that. Imagine that every time you were thought you were depositing a check into your account, you were actually withdrawing that amount of money from your account. In your mind, you were building wealth and creating security, but in reality, you were actually creating more debt and more insecurity. That's what Paul describes here. That's what he realized was happening by relying on himself, his pedigree, and his accomplishments. He was actually increasing the distance between him and the God that he was so desperately trying to please. By not relying on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, he was increasing his indebtedness to the God he was striving for. So no wonder he uses language, strong language, now that he sees the worth of those things. Rubbish. It's a terrible word. Rubbish. It's too tame. Rubbish sounds like something my grandma would say. Oh, that's rubbish. Paul's not saying it's rubbish. He's saying it's crap. Even stronger, but I can't say that word. The farmers in Linden like to say that word. This is... This is in the Greek language word to describe excrement and spoiled food. And Paul says, I'm done with that. That striving is gone. Paul now looks away from Paul to the righteousness that comes by faith and he invites us to do the same. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. Period. Joy is being found in Jesus. That's the Gospel. I know you know it. Many of you. I know you've heard it. Most of you. But do you believe it? Do you live like it? Do you live like an accepted child because of Jesus? Or do you live like an orphan who's upset his father and you've got to do something, clean yourself up before He's going to accept you again. That's not the God of the Bible. And that's not the Gospel that gripped Paul. But Paul's encouragement goes even beyond our justification. It extends to our sanctification as well. Verse 10, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. What Paul describes here is this ongoing work, this deeper fellowship into the life of God, a a living communion that comes through the Spirit of the risen Jesus. Paul wants to, Paul who knew everything about Him, Paul wants to know Jesus more and more, better and better, deeper and deeper. And yes, Paul counts it a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. That doesn't mean that when we suffer, we add anything to Jesus' suffering. It simply means that when we endure the hostility of the world against Jesus, because we are in Him and He in us, that's a privilege. We can rejoice in that. Because of everything we know about who our Savior is and what He has done and His faithfulness that will carry us to the end. This is where joy 
despite the circumstances around us, no matter what they might do, that's, this is where joy comes from. We are safe. We are secure. And we have the confidence that all things work for the good of those who love Him. Those who are His. Joy is being found in Jesus. The power of His resurrection can be yours. That last verse is a whole other sermon, but we need to wrap it up, save it for another day. Let's go back to the very beginning of the passage. Rejoicing is possible when it's in the Lord. Right? Paul doesn't just say rejoice, get it done, do it. He says rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy because of Him and because of what He's done and in Him and because of who He is. Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we, we must leave our degrees, our pride, our accomplishments behind. We must get the gospel right. We must believe the true gospel. We must live this amazing good news of free grace and proclaim its life-giving, life-changing power to the ends of the earth until He comes again. There's no one like Jesus. And there's nothing like the Gospel. You can search this world high and wide. Study every religion you want to. No religion will bring joy and peace and satisfaction like the true God through His Son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the passion of the Apostle Paul, for his story and for how he reminds us of what matters and where our trust and our hope and ultimately where our joy needs to be found. Father, as I prayed earlier, I don't know all the ways that these people here listening to your word need to digest and apply what has been said this morning by your servant Paul and through your Holy Spirit, but I pray that you would take this word, pray that it would not return to you void, but would accomplish all you intend for it to accomplish. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel, the amazing grace of God shown to us. May we rest in that. May we live in, in freedom in reckless abandon because of it. Father, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.